Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes. It is neither investment, legal, nor tax advice and does not represent the opinions of the employers of the host or guest. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, Fraser Rice. This episode is a little different. I'm going to talk about the importance of balancing health. This time, I'm the example. I'm hitting the half-century mark this year, and after three years of COVID disrepair and neglect, I knew I needed to change. In this episode, I'm going to describe those changes and what it's done for me. I'll also be commenting on the significant gap between health, fitness, and the wealth management industrial complex. In brief, I think the industry has a huge blind spot around the intersection of health and wealth and is dangerously ignorant around the widening time and expense divide between one's late career and death. To help me make sense of this is noted expert Bill Perlman. Bill is the founder of the Pearl Institute, and he's an expert in the areas of personal health, human change processes, and systems integration. Bill and I didn't work together. However, I hope his unique perspective on balancing career, fitness, mental health, and other facets helped put my experience into context and give the audience some lessons about my journey. Welcome aboard, Phil. Razor, great to be here. How you doing, buddy? Terrific. And thank you very much for being on. I am on a personal jihad of understanding how to integrate getting healthy and incorporating that into someone's life plan. And you're the right guy to talk about this. You've dealt with a bunch of our mutual friends in this capacity. But maybe take us through a little bit about your background and how you think about getting people right from a health perspective and then helping them think about that in the context of overall wealth and sort of a good lifestyle configuration. I'm going to give you a really abbreviated version of my background just because it's been a long and winding road. So I got a doctorate degree in psychology many years ago, in clinical psychology. And it was around the time when the NASDAQ bubble, the internet bubble was bursting. And that was a psychological event. That was mania, depression, bipolar disorder. And I got very fascinated with markets and got involved with them at a hedge fund, worked my way into finance, social media, and from there, more deeply into finance and came up for air a couple of years ago, maybe five years ago, and was not happy with my own life, was not healthy, was not taking care of myself well. I had made some money, but I had sacrificed a lot of emotional, physical, spiritual health. And so I started going on a journey there at that time and figuring out who I was, remembering, recalling a time in my life when I was young where I was very athletic and very much loved the outdoors. And I had gotten so far away from that. I was overweight. I was drinking way too much, among other things. I started just learning how to take care of myself and started listening to that part of me that was a very faint voice at the time that was back many, many years ago. Hey, Phil, you're an athlete, man. You're a healthy person. And got myself healthy. And I looked around in the network that I'm a part of as this was going on, which is sort of this finance network, advisors, bankers, hedge fund managers, and realized that there were a lot of people out there 
who looked a lot like I looked four or five years ago, who were very stressed, had gotten away. A lot of golfers, tennis players. Hey, I played high school tennis. I played college baseball. I've heard all those kinds of stories and really gotten away from that. So I started writing this newsletter, Prime Cuts Substack newsletter, which was really as much for me as anything else. And now I have a bunch of readers, which is great and lovely. But really, I was doing it for me to explore my own journey. And what I found was there were a lot of people responding to me. I would get emails. I would get incoming. And I just started talking with people impromptu. And so then I started thinking about how do I model this? What's going on here? This is a very natural journey. But if I step back and reflect for a minute, what's actually happening? And what I thought about was life planning. You used that term just a minute ago in the first thing you said to me. Life planning. Okay, so now I'm going to just model this very briefly. Let's say we look at life planning hierarchically, the org chart of life planning. Underneath it, we find wealth planning and maybe career planning and health planning. And health planning is one that is just completely neglected by the society that we live in. We live in sort of this toxic society that promotes not moving our bodies. We're more likely to watch an athletic event than to participate that promotes all kinds of processed foods where we're growing obese, where life expectancy in this nation is actually shrinking. We're actually living less long, and that has endured even post-COVID, which is crazy to think about in the U.S., just the wealthiest country on earth. And I thought, well, you know, there's a real need there for the health planning side of life planning, so not just the wealth planning side. And then I was thinking about, and I have a strong network with advisors and started talking to some of these people about how advisors think about the future. because. Advisors think about the future. That's sort of their job. They have to have a well-developed time perspective. They have to be able to think about things in the present, out into the future with a lot of clarity. That's what they model. Hey, in 10 years, you're going to be here. And even asking aspirational questions, the lake house or the beach house question is a very early part of a conversation that an advisor might have with new clients. And so this really started to gel for me. And that's when I just decided to devote my life from a passion project point of view, created Pearl Institute. And now I work with mostly people who have developed that wealth planning side. They've been successful. They have that house in order, the life planning model in order, but they've neglected the well-being, the health and well-being planning side. That's how I got to where I am today. I was going to say it's fascinating for me because I deal with a lot of intergenerational wealth. And so a lot of people who go through the, let's call it the financial planning or the retirement planning end of things, they only scratch the surface of what's happening for the next generation and inculcating good habits and values. And I think health, as you described, is one of those that family members, kids especially, watch what you do and how you got there. And if you suddenly turn into a 300-pound monster, and yes, maybe you were financially in good shape, that doesn't teach the right lesson. You may be able to transfer value, but you're not really transferring good values in terms of how to balance and 
I think it leads to a gigantic risk that is underappreciated in the, let's call it the wealth management industrial complex, which is how you live between the ages of 65 until death. And to me, not having a real handle on what it means to be healthy both now and in the future, I think it's just one of the big risks that the numbers and the Monte Carlo simulations and so on just completely ignore. Well, you just hit on three primary themes in the way that I think about what I'm doing, the way that I think about myself first, and the way that I think about my clients and the way that I think about the world. And I'm just going to go right through them. I'm going to lead with the most important, and that is what you said about role modeling. You were basically just talking about role modeling. You were saying the way we act has an effect on our children and has an effect on our grandchildren. And really, it's the only thing that has an effect because we can wag our fingers and we can tell our kids what to do as much as we want all the time. And that, like, it just doesn't work. As a matter of fact, it builds resentment. It's an authoritarian type of relationship. It builds resentment. It builds anger. It builds rebellion. The way that we really influence our kids and the next generation, maybe our mentees, maybe people who come to us looking for guidance in their life or career, but especially our children, is the way we behave. There is something called social learning theory that goes back way before Web 2, way before there were social, the kids these days, or maybe five, 10 years ago, we're talking about social learning theory within the context of social media. But there was social learning theory, Albert Bandura going back to the 60s, social psychology, blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to cite chapter and verse too much, but social learning theory is just basically this idea. And they showed it in the lab over and over again. Now they call it mimesis or whatever. That's the new term. It's the same thing. The way we behave influences the people that we have influence on, mostly our kids. And so that's a huge one. The way we behave, my kid the other day picked up a hamburger and he ate it without the bun. He's like 15 and he sees me do it all the time. Low carb guy. And he sees me eating without the bun and he just did the behavior. It wasn't anything ever spoken. I mean, I took note of it, but I didn't say, hey, eat something like this. And he's 15. He needs carbs. He needs to be burning carbs. I'm not anti-carb for a 15-year-old kid, but he did it. And it was just him following the behavior. So the role modeling thing is gargantuan. So it's not just about our lives. It's not just about us, but it's about what we're passing on to our children and to our mentees and the people around us who are looking up to us. And that leads us to the second thing that you mentioned was this part of our lives that's later on, 65 and over. Technologically, We have all of the information and all of the knowledge that we need to live very healthy for a long time once we're 65 and on. And staying healthy when you're older, they call that health span as differentiated from lifespan. Lifespan is how long you live. Health span is how long you stay healthy. And so you can go 65, 75, 85, 90 and stay healthy and stay sharp cognitively And not 100%, but increase the probability that you do. And that is health span. And so, yes, we want to increase our health span. We want to be able to live that free life. Hey, explore other things besides 
our main vocation. I mean, we have other interests. Really do travel. Really do go to Spain. Really do all these things. Really do get that lake house and learn to sail. Really do those things that we say we're going to do when we get older, but maybe we run out of energy. And the third thing that you mentioned that I've been thinking about lately is this optimization factor. So what you said was that we do all this planning. We have this house in order. We have our tax planning laid out beautifully. We have estate planning laid out beautifully. We have all these educational accounts laid out for our kids, 529s or whatever. We have that all meticulously planned. And yet we are neglecting this other side. This is happening more and more. I mean, we're seeing the obesity rate is rising in this country to just incredible. I mean, it's almost half of adults in the US are obese and 70% or more are either obese or overweight. And so we're not doing the planning on this side. We're not doing the health planning. We're not doing sort of the same optimization on that other side of the life planning field, saying to ourselves, hey, what do I need to do now? I mean, on the wealth side, hey, I need to pile money into the 401k every month, every quarter, every year. What am I not doing over here on the health side that I could be doing to have that same effect so that my future self is ecstatic with my present behavior? Something that I just thought of with part of that is two of the major financial risks that you face, especially getting older, is divorce, which is a big divided by two of your assets. And now that 50% rate on obesity, and I, I think it's probably even higher or getting higher, you've basically got two coin flips where either divorce or a cataclysm caused by sort of a lethargic lifestyle. Those are two things that I think financial plans completely ignore. And it's something that from an intergenerational perspective, I think the idea that you are facing two, let's call it quasi-existential problems that can impact all this good work that you're doing on the financial planning side, to not take care of that other house and to make sure that that's in order, you're shooting yourself in the foot long-term. That is a very astute point. And I remember having a conversation with a couple of guys who are seasoned in the advisory space. And when I told them what I was doing, that's exactly where they went immediately. They started talking about the economics of healthy aging and unhealthy aging, and that your health costs go way up. And it's not just that, not just expenses, but like you were saying, what are the costs of getting ill? And the thing that you reminded me of, and going back to the role modeling conversation that we were having before, is that we have role models in our life pretty much everybody, maybe not everybody, there's almost perfect people out there, but almost everybody has role models in their life who teach us how not to be. And so there are elders in our sphere, whether it's an uncle, whether it's a father, whether it's a grandfather. I had a grandfather who I never met and I never knew, but I heard stories about who was a gambler and probably an alcoholic. And I like related because I was drinking way too much. And I was like, oh, I got that gene from that guy that I never met that left when my mom was a little girl. So role models sometimes teach us how not to be. And so what we are seeing now is some of that. The smarter kids out there, and even people in our cohort, 
in our 40s and 50s are seeing that thing. Hey, my mom or my grandmom or whoever, or my aunt let herself get frail or let herself get fat and is on 12 medications or whatever. I'm going to regale you with a story. I came to think about life a little bit differently this year. I'm turning 50 in about a month. And I said to myself, I went to a friend's book signing and I saw a picture of myself and I said, this is out of control. I have gone through different waves of being really fit and then not so fit. I got into really good shape right as COVID hit. (laughs) And then I fell into disrepair over the course of a couple of years to three years, slowly but surely, as you know, we're all trying to survive in one way, shape or form. Come out of that. And I go to this book signing in February. I see a picture of myself. And I was like, this is just awful. And then I started thinking to myself, I'm just not performing as well as I'd like to. I'm not enjoying the things that I like to do that are active. I'm a big golfer and I get all these little aches and pains and all this stuff. So I finally just said, okay, I need to make some changes here. And hopefully this is a success story. Over the last three or four months, I've dropped 25 pounds down to roughly 180, which is my law school weight. And it's created so much energy. But it's one of those stories where I sort of say to myself, you get to that 50-year-old level and it gets hard and it's going to get progressively harder to stay in that shape and form. But boy, do I really feel the benefits of it. Well, number one, kudos to you because way leads on to way. And a lot of times we sort of go down this road and there's inertia and it happens slowly. We have this tendency to gain about a pound or two a year in the US. And so that's slowly. It's almost, we don't even notice it. I mean, if you're 200 pounds and you gain one pound or one and a half pounds, it's less than 1% of your body weight. But if you do that 10, 15, 20 years in a row, all of a sudden you're 230. And so that inertia is a very strong force. And what you did is fantastic, whether it was seeing, likely there was some contemplation going on at some level in the back of your head that you weren't quite bringing it up. And then seeing that photo brought it to the surface and you were able to start making some changes, which is fantastic. And I mean, this is anecdotal, but this is kind of what I'm seeing out there. I'm seeing sort of this bimodal distribution of health among people within our sort of general cohort. Now, I'm older than you, but I'm sort of thinking about a a 20-year cohort, 40 to 60. There's a bimodal distribution. There are people out there who are really becoming health conscious and really going in that direction. And then there's this other group that is just sort of letting inertia within the context of this toxic culture run its course. And so what we want to do is we want to shake those people. The one feedback I'd have for you or the one challenge that I present to you is to begin thinking about and working through what I call the no yo-yo. So many people call me up. I do an initial consultation. We get on the horn. They'll say, hey, I'm 260. And I'll say to them, well, when was the last time you were notably lighter than that, notably less heavy? And they'll say, well... About three years ago, I got down to 200 and I hit 200 and now I've gained it all back. That's the yo-yo. It's very, very common because the way we're thinking about nutrition culturally is mistaken. We think about it in terms of calorie control, 
We think about it in terms of willpower. We think about it in terms of dieting, all the wrong things. We've learned all the wrong things about how to eat. The way we should be thinking about it is lifestyle and mindset and identity and yes, eating nutrient-rich foods. And so the challenge I'm going to put back at you is, okay, you're coming up on this 50th, which is a perfect milestone for you to have this breakthrough in your thinking. Like I said, kudos to you. Fantastic. And you've done some of the work and you've lost some of the weight. Now, okay, how do you continue on that path and not give it back? That's going to be like sort of this next thing for you. It's front and center in my mind. And one of the reasons why I got started ahead of the birthday was so that it wasn't something where I'm like, oh, you know, I crossed this arbitrary age milestone and then I try to put in place six different processes to try to get healthy again. For me, it's 105% diet. I shocked the system and I guess I was so bloated that it was just crazy that I got out of control like that. But I was able to lose 10 pounds quickly. But then from a dietary standpoint, I really reduced my meat intake a lot. And then very subtle things like instead of cake and cookies, I replaced that with fruits that I like and enjoy. And I was like, you know, you can't get in too much trouble eating fruit. If that's replacing those types of things, that's good. And I found a way that just basically sort of zap my lust for carbs and chips and things like that. And that's where I, you know, I had a really good cookie game and you know, you got to stop doing that. But then I think the thing that helps too is on the exercise part of it, which I fall in and out of love with exercise. Generally speaking, I stopped beating myself up for not getting to the gym or a gym consistently and replace that with, okay, if I do 40 push-ups in the morning and 40 push-ups at night every day, I will have done something. It's a lot like making your bed. And while that's not enough, it's at least something. And combine that with walking in New York and then all the other activities that I do, I think I get to a level of stasis that's okay. But for me, the idea of bringing in the power of compounding from the wealth side of things and stuff that I do from that component if I'm using the power of compounding on a couple of very small things activity-wise from both a diet perspective and from an exercise perspective, that to me is going to be, I think, a key to keeping the weight off and to keep what I've built over the last four months to have that keep going and maybe to further take off even more, although I'm probably right about a good weight for me, but we can always improve and in a way, I kind of believe in being underweight as opposed to overweight in terms of long-term health. But that power of compounding concept and bringing that to this health side of things, so far, it's been really useful for me. Frazier, let me just tell you, I love talking to you because you're like hitting key points for me. You're doing my job for me. And it's great to hear because it's completely separate. It's like, the hero with a thousand faces, like there's myths from all over the world that have similar themes where those societies were never in contact with each other. Well, it's the same thing going on here in that you just mentioned three things again that are huge. Number one, this is the most important thing. Processed foods are poison. Highly processed foods. These companies, and as a matter of fact, I wrote a post a few months ago about all of these companies making all-time highs, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, 
General Mills, Hershey, Mondelez, or Mondelez, however you pronounce that, all of these highly processed food companies, Pepsi, Pepsi's killing it, by the way. All of these highly processed food companies are making all-time highs. They're blowing it out, and they are feeding, they have the machine down pat. They have Washington in their pocket with the money they spend there. They have the best advertisers in the world working on their commercials, and they have these demonic food scientists in the lab creating these hyper-palatable, highly processed foods that are really just addictive. And so a lot of cards are stacked against us. But if you can wean yourself, I'm not a huge proponent on fruit, but fruit is way better than Doritos. And so if you're eating, I mean, I love watermelon. If you look at the energy density, if you look at how much energy or how much sugar there is in uh, watermelon versus how much energy or carbohydrates, processed carbohydrates in Funyuns or Doritos or whatever, there's no comparison. Watermelon's so much better. So just by you getting away from processed foods is probably 85%, 90% of the nutrition work that you have to do, which is fantastic. The second thing I loved hearing you say is that you're just sort of giving yourself a break. You're not being so hard on yourself if I don't make it to the gym. If I just get a couple push-ups in, that's enough sometimes. Or if I just walk and I don't eat the high processed foods and I get some push-ups in, that is enough. And you're giving yourself a break. And when you're hard on yourself, then you feel the failure so much. So I didn't get to the gym and then you beat yourself up and then you don't go back to the gym and then you're avoiding the gym. And then all of a sudden you're not exercising anymore. So the fact that you're giving yourself a break and not being so hard on yourself is huge. And then the last one, and I love that you said this because there are so many parallels between health and wealth. And like I was talking about before, like that future planning, the reason that I gravitated towards advisors is why I have a network there, but also that time perspective. Advisors are able to see the future and they have a highly developed sense of time perspective. Compounding, you use the term, here's another parallel. You're exactly correct. Compounding wealth and compounding health rhyme with each other. They're very, very similar. The more we build, the more we build. And that compounding curve, you look at like one of those long-term charts of compounding interest, and it starts like a very, very flat, and then the slope begins to accelerate to the upside as you go out more and more years. That is exactly the case with both compounding wealth and compounding health. You feel your future self out 10 years. What you're doing now for yourself, Fraser, 10 years from now, that future self that will wake up one morning 10 years from today, just as you woke up this morning, is going to wake up and just be like, give that thumbs up, give that fist bump to your present self and saying, hey, dude, you did me right by starting getting in shape back then. It's like the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago kind of thing. Help me out with a theory as well. So I'm a big golfer. And so I, if I'm lost in a forest, I could usually have a personal GPS that gets me to a golf course somehow. And so I use that as sort of my North Star and being able to enjoy that sport and be able to function well. Some of the aches and pains that I've developed over the years 
a lot of it is flexibility related. And one of the big things that I tell people, especially younger people who ask me to the extent they care about my opinion, said, you know what, what you can really do to help yourself is if you don't like lifting weights or running or whatever, just make darn sure you stretch because that flexibility goes away. And when that happens, then you talk about power of compounding in a good way. The power of compounding in a bad way to me really happens when that flexibility goes away and you end up shuffling your feet and then that turns into structural damage and so on. I got into hot yoga a bunch of years ago and I do it periodically. I don't do it as much as I probably would like. I get a little bit bored with it because it takes too long. But boy, it helped me because I was starting to accumulate back pain, hip pain. My hamstrings were tight from sitting too long. All that stuff all kind of reverberated against itself. And to me, the stretching, whatever form it took, has really paid dividends now. And that's something that I think I'm going to be really accelerating, especially during the cold months of the year when you can really go out and do those types of things. This is a great point. Again, you're doing so many of the right things. I love it. And body movement in general, once we start moving our bodies very regularly, I love to go on trails and hike. Walking is fantastic. Jogging is fantastic. But this idea of every footfall is slightly different. Every time we drop our foot, there's a different angle or there's a rock. And it's not just a repetitive motion. Stretching, a little bit of yoga, just stretching a little bit. You do micro stretches. And the same goes with the workouts too. What you're doing, the fancy kids now in the health guru space call it micro workouts or micro exercising, where you just do these very brief, hey, I got down and I did 50 push-ups before I went to bed or whatever you said before. Just micro workouts is fantastic. Micro stretching is the same thing. It's fantastic. You don't have to do all the yoga. Yoga's great. Yoga's good, but you don't have to. I do two stretches every day besides the movement stuff. And I really don't do that much more. Occasionally I do yoga. I enjoy it. I get bored with it too. By the 45th, 50th minute, I'm kind of like, okay, enough of this, whatever, whatever <laughs> movement. You're doing perfect there and you don't have to go crazy. The more important thing than the intensity, especially as we're aging, especially as we get into this 40 to 60 cohort, is not intensity, is not becoming a yoga head or a muscle head or a marathoner. The more important thing becomes consistency. And it just becomes continuing to do it, never stopping. And even if we phone it in, even if we go very light, doesn't matter. As long as we just continue. In fact, going very light, has a really important place because as we age, our recovery time expands. It gets a little bit longer. It takes our bodies a little bit longer to recover. And so within our culture that is like this go, 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 go thing, plus us remembering our younger selves where we didn't need to rest that often, we make this mistake. It's a very common mistake that we don't rest enough. We don't give ourselves that time in between workouts to heal enough. And that promotes injury. Another parallel between health and wealth, there is a behavioral economics of injury. Just the way Kahneman said, talking about markets, losses loom larger than gains, prospect theory and that whole thing, foundation of behavioral economics. It's the exact same thing with injury. 
when we get injured, it's twice as bad as staying healthy is good. And so we really don't want to get injured. So honoring rest, the micro workouts, micro stretching, all of that. One thing to add on to that, I mean, it's just probably giving up the ghost to any <laughs> health insurers who are like, oh, what's this guy got we can put our actuarial tables at? I've got a little bit of arthritis in my toes, my backs and things like that. One thing that I've really learned over the last couple of years is sometimes walking 36 holes with your golf bag, it's just not the right thing to do. And the positive attributes of that exercise are outweighed by some of the wear and tear that causes somewhere else. To me, I feel like I've gotten a little bit smarter about how I exercise too. And trying to make up for a week of inactivity through two hours of hyper intense this or that. Why am I doing that to myself when I can't get out of bed the next morning and then I put injury front and center as a significant issue? Your point just looms large for me, that consistency, doing a little bit every day, but being smart too. It's okay to walk 18 holes and then maybe take a cart for the second 18 holes so that you're not overdoing it and then putting too much pressure on one or another parts of your body. I take days off all the time and maybe just go for a long, slow walk that day. There's like sort of two ways that I walk. One is like, you know, I'll have my dog and sometimes when she stops and is like smelling something or doing whatever she does, I just let her. I just stand there for as long as she stands there. So it's like consciously a really slow, mellow walk. They call it active rest. I don't even call it that. It's not even that active. It's just rest. So what you're talking about is just listening to your body, listening to yourself, having some wisdom. It's fantastic. I mean, I love it, dude. What are you not doing? Give me a problem. You're checking a lot of good boxes here. What's one thing maybe I could help you with? The thing I worry about is I definitely feel like I'm not getting enough aerobic work and I'm not really hitting it as far as strength training intensity, those types of things. That's the next step for me is how do I build that into my system or into my working process? Time constraints, I'm, we're all busy people, this type of thing. The muscle part, hopefully my push-ups get me started with that, but I need to do more and I need to do more aerobically. I feel like the stretching, I'm terrified of tearing things and I want to give myself the best chances possible of not doing that. I definitely take time during the day to make sure that that works. But what can I do in short steps to deal with the aerobic and the strength training, keeping in mind that the time resources aren't really there a lot? Well, again, you're hitting on just the right notes. Our muscle mass as a percentage of body weight, one, and two, our ability to efficiently process the oxygen we breathe in. So in other words, getting it from out here in space, inside our body, into our lungs, to our blood, to our muscles, and our muscles then use that oxygen to move. Our efficiency at that, those two things, our ability to breathe efficiently and our muscle mass as a percentage of body weight are strong predictors of that health span that we were talking about before and lifespan, how long we stay healthy and how long we stay alive. Not guarantee. I mean, this is all probabilistic, but those two factors are very strongly associated with how long we stay healthy 
how long we're able to function, how long we're able to enjoy life. You're talking about two of the exact perfect things. So here's what I would recommend. First of all, there's a progressive nature to this. So if right now you're doing push-ups before bed, maybe you're spending 5, 10, 15 minutes a day or every other day doing that, I would think about what's the next one thing that I could add? What's just the next one? So that progression can be a very shallow, can be a very slow progression. It's a classic story. People join CrossFit, New Year's, it's a resolution. They join CrossFit, they start going 100 miles an hour, they haven't been exercising for years and they get injured. You could go the exact opposite and just go very slowly picking things up. So maybe you just begin to add one more exercise to your routine whenever you're doing it. I would recommend the body squat. You're doing push-ups. Push-ups is such a great exercise. You don't need any weights, and it works so many muscles in your upper body. It's working your chest, obviously. It's working your arms, the triceps especially, which is the largest group of muscles in your arms. It's working your shoulders. It is working your back. It's working your core. What I would add to that is just one. Maybe you just start with one set of 10 body squats. You just go to YouTube and put body squat. You're going to get 10 videos showing you proper form. You just do 10 body squats. You're going to feel it the first time you do it. But that is a very similar exercise for your lower body. It doesn't work all the muscles in your lower body. It's a gross muscle exercise for your lower body. So you just begin to add one more. And then maybe you just do those two. And if you're just doing them consistently for a while, you're going to have an incredible benefit from that. And then maybe six months from now, you say, okay, this has kind of gotten easy. Maybe I'll just add one more. Or maybe tomorrow you add one more. I mean, the pace is up to you. But as long as you're sort of going in the right direction, that's all that really matters. On the aerobic side, for that breathing efficiency, what I would say is, you can do the exact same thing in terms of the gradualism. So if you're walking a lot around New York, great, fantastic. It's all good. I love walking. I'm a huge proponent of walking. We're bipeds. Our bodies are meant to do that. What I would do is I would say, okay, I'm just going to add one dedicated workout a week, maybe just a 30-minute workout where I start to breathe a little bit heavier and I start to sweat a little bit. And that can be at first a walk run where you walk, then you jog a little bit, kind of get tired. You walk a little bit, jog a little bit. That would be the next step. And again, we're all busy. We all have time restrictions. That would be like a start at a 30 minute commitment. And then you move on from there. Well, that's really good advice. The squats, I actually have been doing that a little bit intermittently. It definitely helps. That will be a focus going forward. Lots of good stuff here. Phil, what is the best way for our listeners to find you as you're out there in the internet and so on? If someone wants to engage your services or find out more about what you do, what's the fastest and best way to get a hold of you? You can email me at pperlman at gmail.com. I'm very low key. That's really the best way. pperlman. So P-P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N at Gmail. You can also follow me on Twitter. And just at me there, hey, can you talk? Occasionally, once a month or so, I might put out a link, like one of those Calendly kind of links where you can set up a consultation. I also take referrals. And more recently, 
I've gotten some calls from advisors who have a client who could benefit from this type of balancing out the life planning service. So I've also been getting more and more into that as clients have come to me. It's kind of a, an emergent part of my practice that I think is really nice because I get to work with advisors in a different way, more in a collaborative way than in a coach-client sort of way. So really, PPROMIN on Twitter is probably the easiest. PPROMIN at Gmail. My Substack is Prime Cuts at Substack, and I've taken the summer off. I'm going to start writing again probably in September. Really cool. And I'll have that in the show notes for people who like to see it visually. Phil, so much fun to have you on. And we haven't worked together specifically, but it sounds like, as you said, people from different geographies or cultures kind of come to the same conclusions at some point. Hopefully, I continue to have a good tale to tell on this stuff. And the work that you're doing with people, I think, is unbelievably important. And to ignore the health side of things ultimately ends up being really expensive in one way or another. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate your openness. You came to me with this and I love it, but your openness going into yourself and going there, that's great stuff. That is role modeling. And that is, I think, helpful to people more than just sort of talking about strategies and all that. I really appreciate that. Really good stuff. Phil, appreciate it. Thank you very much. Adios. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Fraser Rice is an employee of Next Capital Management, LLC. This podcast is not investment, legal, or tax advice, nor does it reflect the opinions of Next Capital Management. Any opinions represented in the show are Fraser's individually and not an endorsement of the guests.